Well, I may have mentioned to you, as I did to the um, first hour a week or so ago, that uh, it, it, my habit is to preach through the Scriptures verse by verse, and it's always a little bit odd when I am going topically, as I have been this summer and the uh, last couple of summers, in fact. Uh, and so I was kind of uh, waiting before the Lord to find out, uh, you know, is there a new direction that we will be taking uh, in looking at uh, the word expositionally, verse by verse. And um, I was reading this past week in the Gospel of Luke, and as I was reading, the impression uh, came rather strongly to me that that is where uh, we should go uh, next. And my first thought, I have to tell you, was, um, you know, you read Luke's Gospel in the opening chapters, they're all about Christmas. You read about, you read about Elizabeth and Zacharias and the birth of John the Baptist and the angels visiting Mary and the shepherds and the, the decree going out from Caesar Augustus. And, you know, you read all of that and it's all Christmas stuff. And, you know, I was kind of saying, Lord, um, it's August. You know, and how do I go to Christmas in August? And um, no sooner had I asked the question, you know, I, I don't know what, how you dialogue with God, but I, I, all of this goes on nonverbal, okay? I'm reading and I'm praying and I'm meditating and I'm posing questions, and as the questions come to mind, answers come to mind. And uh, to me, that is actually a dialogue, because I know I didn't think up these answers. It's kind of like they're, they're coming into my mind from the Lord, and um, I hope you don't think I'm weird. I, hope you, I do hope you hear the Lord. The Scripture says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. So anyway, um, the next thing that came to mind was Luke didn't know anything about Christmas, and I thought about that, and I thought, well, that's true, because Christmas, uh, as we know it, as a holiday in December, did not occur until quite a bit later in church history. In fact, several hundred years after the, the first century growth of Christianity. So Luke knew nothing about Christmas. When he was writing about all of these events, he was laying the foundation for the story that... Um, that he was going to tell. And then as I kind of read over those early chapters again, one of the things that uh, became very clear to me is this, it is a Christmas story, but it's not a Christmas story per se. It really is a story about longing and yearning and hoping for God somehow to come and intervene and, and bring deliverance and bring relief for those who were spiritually minded. It was a hunger for spiritual deliverance and for, for God to come and visit His people. And for those who were, may I say, a little more shallowly minded uh, and looking for political deliverance, they were oppressed and frustrated. And they were waiting for something to happen that would liberate them from their oppression. And really, Luke is a story about longing and yearning for God to come and intervene in our lives and in history. 
And in fact, that's exactly what Luke purports to write. is a story about God's visitation of his people. So, uh, I thought that was quite fitting. And then Russ Henning came to me after the first service and handed me this little slip of paper. He says, you know, it really does fit quite chronologically because most biblical historians believe that Jesus was probably born in March or April anyway, uh, in the early spring of the year. Uh, we just picked December 25th because it worked out with the Roman calendar, you know. And that would have meant that the angels were visiting Elizabeth and Mary in August and September. So there you have it. We're right on time, and we're beginning right at the appropriate place. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and I want uh, to... Uh, have us uh, look at those first four verses where Luke declares his intention. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what he writes. And he writes it to a man by the name of Theophilus. Some people have thought that Theophilus was a fictitious character that Luke kind of invented as a make-believe audience. I don't think that's true. In fact, Uh, Many of the better uh, commentators do not think it's true either. They believe that Theophilus was a real person. Uh, His name means friend of God. So you can kind of see how uh, the imaginative would come up with what they did. But but, uh, other, uh, that was a name that was given. It would be nice to be named friend of God, wouldn't it? Theophilus. And uh, Luke is writing to him, but he's intending it for a much broader audience. Books in those days, I'll tell you more about this in a moment, but they were intended to be read aloud. And so Theophilus was the recipient, but it was intended that he would share uh, this book. And so this is what Luke writes, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning..." were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, think with me for a moment. Imagine you're a publisher... Someone has just submitted a manuscript, and you've decided it's worth printing. And so you're going to take that manuscript, and you're going to publish it. And you're hoping that it will be uh, picked up by all the bookstores and uh, various outlets, and that uh, people will buy it. What is the most important consideration for making that book a good sell. Isn't it the jacket? I mean, when you think about it, isn't it the cover? Even though you don't know what's in the book, if it's a drab, dull, uninspiring cover, no one is ever going to pick it off the shelf. And so they have graphic artists who make good money doing nothing but designing book jackets and covers 
to draw the eye to the product. They want people to look at it, and, and they want to create enough interest by the cover that the intended audience will pick it off the shelf. They put a lot of thought into who is the intended audience. Who's going to read this? Um, if, it's, if it's a technical book, they put some cover on there that uh, has uh, some imagery of technology and something that the audience would recognize and say, wow, that looks interesting. And then they put a catchy title and they, they work it out in such a way that someone will pick it up and they'll look at it and they'll begin to peruse the book. You know, I don't know how you shop for a book, but when I'm wandering through the bookstore looking for a book, you know, if it's a novel, it's got this this uh, cover that speaks of the mystery that's held inside of it, you know, and you want to, you want to, wow, I want to read that book, you know. So I take the book off the shelf and I open it up and I check out the table of contents, kind of see what it is. I read the cover jacket, the, the inside and back leaves, and then I kind of flip through the book. Well, if you were a first century author, you had a problem. You, your book didn't have a jacket because it didn't have a book. It was rolled up in a scroll. And you couldn't pick it off the shelf and flip through it because it didn't flip. It unrolled. And unless there was a very big table, you couldn't unroll it to look at it. In fact, the average scroll was about 32 feet long. It was like buying a roll of, you know, wallpaper and trying to see what's in it. So literally, what first century authors would do is they would put the jacket on the first column. So when you open the scroll and you read the first column, it told you what you needed to know about the book. That was typical first century production. And uh, by the way, it was all handwritten. So if you're going to write a book, you didn't have to worry about the printing press or the publisher. You just went and bought a scroll. You went to your local Staples and you said, I want a 32-foot scroll. And you would take that and you would begin to write in columns across the scroll. And that was about as big as, it, you know, as they came. That was kind of the average size. In fact, Luke wrote two volumes. And interestingly enough, the two volumes that he wrote, Luke and Acts, occupy the length of approximately two scrolls. And it was pretty typical. And so Luke would have written in volume one, in the first column, what he wanted to catch the audience's eye and, and get them to read this book. And what he put down in these four verses, in fact, occupied the first column of a manuscript in a typical scroll. And so here we have... The, the cover of the book, if you please. And he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to uh, compile an account of things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. He says, I'm not writing the first book about this story that's ever been written. I'm, I'm writing, but, but with all due respect to what has already been written, I'm going to write another one. And I'm going to take it from a different perspective. And one of the things I want you to know is that what I'm going to write is based on eyewitness testimony. Many of these people are still alive. You can go talk to them. I, I did this on the basis of eyewitness testimony. So 
So I'm writing to you from people who saw these events with their own eyes. And he says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. He said, not only did I talk to the eyewitnesses, but I researched their stories. I investigated them to make certain that they were well corroborated with other eyewitnesses and with the truth. One of the things that's kind of interesting, uh, it's, uh, it's actually in Luke chapter 2. Let me flip over there real quick and um, kind of highlight a verse for you. Uh, now, in the days, in those days, Luke chapter 2, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, some scholars, and I use that word somewhat tongue-in-cheek with um, great reservation, <laughs> Some scholars for many years doubted the historicity of Luke's narrative because they said there's no evidence of any Quirinius ever being governor of Syria. I mean, what, what is he talking about? You just make that up or what? You know? And, uh, and I love it when the skeptics uh, come to the front and then somebody puts a shovel in the ground and proves them all wrong because archaeologists eventually found some coins from the first century that had Quirinius inscription who was governor of Syria on them for the years that he describes. It was a short period of time, but there he was, just as Luke said. And Luke said, I have carefully investigated everything I've written and I have verified that it's true. By the way, Luke was a pretty well-educated person. He was a physician in his day, he would have been among the upper class. He would have had the benefit of a broad education, much like the Apostle Paul, who was Saul. He would have been educated in Greek literature, in Roman literature, in Roman culture, and had all of this background. And, uh, and Luke had that kind of training and development that he could write this sort of a story with great credibility. And so he says, I've investigated everything. But then Luke distinguishes his writing because he says, I determined to write it out for you in consecutive order. Now, here's an interesting point. There are four Gospels, as you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We often lump the first three together in what we call the synoptic Gospels. A synoptic meaning a synopsis or a brief overview of the biographical life of Christ, uh, and then John, who writes a, a little differently than the synoptics. The synoptics have a lot in common. In fact, they share approximately 600 verses that are almost verbatim uh, among them, and then Matthew and Luke branch off a bit. John writes about different uh periods of time in the life and ministry of Christ and spends more time in certain areas than other. But having said that, Luke distinguishes his writing from Matthew, Mark, and John in a special way. Matthew, Mark, and John follow the convention of a biography. They write the way a first century biography would have been written. 
And in the first century, you know, we write biographies a little differently in our day and time. We begin with a person's birth and their childhood and the influences in their childhood and their schooling and their education. And we kind of take you blow by blow through their life and all the things that shaped how they were and whatever. The first century biographies uh, usually mention the birth somewhat briefly and then jump right into the significant event. This is what makes this person stand out. This is why they're important. And then they usually include some uh, way in which the hero of the story dies because that's always significant. What did God, or in the case of secularists, the gods think of this person? Because how they died sort of reflected that. And if you look at Matthew, Mark, and John, you find that it follows that kind of approach. There's this brief uh, beginning to establish the facts, and then it's taken up with the ministry of Jesus as an adult. Why does he stand out? What makes him important? These are the things. And then the latter portion of their writing is taken up with his with his death and crucifixion and resurrection. Luke takes a different approach. The genre that he uses is historical. He says, I'm I'm here to tell you the story in consecutive order. I want you to follow the narrative. Notice what he says in verse 1. I have undertaken to compile an account of the Things accomplished among us. Not in any way to downplay the significance of Jesus who is the main character. But to point out that Luke's focus is on the events. And really what he wants us to know is that God has come into human history and made a difference, changed and shaped the course of humanity by the things that occurred. And we can look at those things and see their importance. And of course, they surround the person of Jesus Christ, but Luke says, I'm going to tell you the story in order. And if you read his two-volume series, you start with birth, and go to death and resurrection in volume 1, and then in volume 2 you begin with ascension, and you go to expansion of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. So you begin with the intervention of the birth of Christ in human history, and you end at volume 2, chapter 28, with the evangelization of the Roman Empire. And how over 50 years... This man, Jesus, and the events surrounding his life impacted the whole gospel, uh, the whole Roman Empire and the message. Now, there are some unique features about Luke's gospel that I want to highlight for you this morning. Uh, First of all, the purpose and circumstances of his writing. One of the questions we should ask is, when did Luke write this narrative, this historical By the way, I'm going to use narrative and story uh, throughout these messages, and I do not in any way by that mean fiction. You know, this is a factual story, but it's still a story. It's a narrative. 
but it's absolutely true. In fact, Luke says that, that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. I want you to know the truth. Luke expects to be believed that everything he says is absolutely factual information. He doesn't want us to assume that he has interpolated or in some other way uh, embellished the facts. But this is the data. This is the truth. And so when I use story or narrative, uh, I don't mean fiction. I just mean there is a story here to be told. And the time of Luke's writing was probably in A.D. 60 or to 70, somewhere in that period of time. I say that because, first of all, Jesus was born somewhere around 4 B.C. You say, wait a minute, how could he be born four years before he was born? Well, the Roman calendar is off. Jesus, Jesus is on, but the Roman calendar is off a little bit. Um, he was born before 4 B.C. We know that because Herod died about then, and Herod was still on the throne when Jesus was born. So we've got to back that up a little bit. Uh, the other thing we realize then is that Pentecost occurred somewhere around A.D. 25, 26, somewhere along in there. And the book of Acts takes about 25 years, so that brings us to A.D. 50. And these are events that Luke tells us about in his story. So he had to, he had to have written after the 28th chapter of Acts. And there were other books beginning to be circulated among them. Uh, Matthew and uh, Mark, for sure. And so Luke is probably writing in that latter third part of the first century. Why is that important? Well, the message, if you recall the Apostle Paul, and the message is Jesus has died to save us and He's coming back. They were so... Um, committed to the return of Jesus Christ, so uh, focused on the return of Jesus Christ that when time went by and Jesus had not returned, um, Paul had to do some explaining. You recall that he wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, don't let anybody lead you astray. Wait a minute. He says, let me explain some of the sequence of events so that you'll know when Jesus is coming and so he wrote the Thessalonian letters, probably in A.D. 50, um, to explain why Jesus had not returned. Peter, uh, likewise, a little later, writes a similar kind of thing when he says, God is not slack concerning His promises. Some people count slackness, but He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But Jesus will come when that appointed moment, when the last person has turned to Christ, Jesus will come back. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, I know you're worried about the people who died already and you're afraid that they missed out, but don't worry about that. Those who have died in Christ will be raised first. And then we're going to be caught up with them and and." They're going to come out of the grave. Don't be concerned and to be absent from the body. He told the Philippians to be present with the Lord. All of these kinds of reassurances that the delay of Jesus Christ does not mean He's forgotten His promise. One of the reasons Luke writes 
is to underscore the fact that God keeps His promises. He relates the events in the life of Christ to the prophecies that preceded Him. And Luke is hoping to give encouragement and hopefulness and and to encourage the church. Hang on. Jesus is going to keep His promise. And God is involved in human history. And, And He will take care of you. Don't worry about that. That's part of Luke's intention. Because, as I put it in my theological wording, eschatological hope is waning. And Luke wants to underscore that that hope is still alive. But it may not necessarily be in the time frame that first century believers expected. The other thing is that Luke, because he focuses on the history, uh, he wants us to understand that God is involved in the affairs of human beings. So often, we feel alone down here. Sometimes people, and and there are whole philosophies that have drawn the conclusion that, yeah, there's probably a creator, but he kind of wound things up and went on a long vacation, and now we're just kind of on our own. And uh, and Luke says, I, I don't want you thinking that way. I want you to realize that God is invested in your lives and in your history day by day, moment by moment. I, he, he really wants to underscore that, um, that God is actually there in the course of human history. By the way, Herb is going to make a study guide for those of you that are worried about the fact that there isn't one. I have one. (laughs) Someone suggested I just run it off, but then you would know my misspellings. So I decided to let Herb fix it, and it'll be in PDF format. But... um, There are some special emphases in Luke's Gospel that I want to highlight for us as well. For Luke, he takes the viewpoint that Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, when I say viewpoint, Jesus is all of the things that all of the Gospels portray Him as. But each of them take a particular perspective and underscore it an aspect, a facet of his character. Matthew presents him as the Messiah of the Jewish people. You know, John, he is the Word, the living Word, the Son of God. You know, Luke wants us to recognize his humanity, not in any way sinfulness, because he has perfected humanity God incarnate in human flesh, but he refers to him as son of man. And when he traces the genealogy, he goes all the way back to Adam, Luke does. Matthew goes all the way back, you know, to the Jewish lineage. But Luke keeps going and takes us all the way back to the beginning. He wants us to know that Jesus is very God of very God, but very man of very man. He's human. And he wants us to see 
that incarnational reality of Jesus Christ. Luke also selects events that particularly highlight Jesus' compassion on the down and out. Those who are suffering. The outcast of society. Luke has a whole collection of stories and events in the life of Christ that the other gospel writers did not record. For one thing, we know that Luke probably read Matthew and Mark. And perhaps because he was a physician and filled with compassion for people who were suffering, that led him to choose some of the events that he did. But he included uh, probably about a dozen different episodes in the life of Christ that the other gospel writers don't include. And they often focus on Jesus' care for the rejected of society, for the suffering, for the poor. He's very interested in letting us know that Jesus was very concerned about the outcast. Very marvelous viewpoint to highlight for us. Luke also wants to bring hope and assurance that God does not forget his promises. I've mentioned that already, but it bears repeating. God does not forget his promises. God will act. God is on time and on target. And we can count on him. He's not going to leave us uh, groping in the darkness. But he's going to come. And another interesting thing about Luke, and, and for you ladies, I hope this is a great encouragement to you, because oftentimes you must feel that this is just like a male-dominated world or something, and, and uh, that even Christianity tends to be a male-dominated faith. But Luke, uh, beyond all the other gospel writers, particularly emphasizes the role of women in the ministry and discipleship of Jesus Christ. He tells us, he's the only one that tells us that in that group who followed Jesus around, there were women included that went around with Jesus from place to place. And that there were women who particularly attested to the veracity, the truthfulness of some of the gospel accounts and events. And Luke highlights this both in the gospel and in the book of Acts. He underscores the role of women in the life of Christ in the spreading of the gospel. And it should be a great encouragement because it's almost like he says, whoops, we left somebody out. And I want to draw attention to this. And we'll see that as we go along. I'd like to conclude this morning by... um, Looking at Zechariah's prophecy, it's found in the first chapter, beginning in verse 67. You remember that um, Zacharias, as Luke's gospel begins to get into the story, 
that Zacharias was chosen to offer incense and whatever in the in the temple service, and he had gone in, and while he was there, he was um, startled by an angel. Zacharias and Elizabeth were barren. Elizabeth was barren, and um, I just I just thought it's I'm sorry. And one of the rabbit trails. Someone the other day said something about we're having a baby, and I remember someone saying, "What do you mean we're having a baby? Men don't have babies. I don't care what you think. <laughs> Only women have babies, and just ask one if you don't believe that." But anyway. So Elizabeth was barren. I'm, I'm not saying the guy didn't have anything to do with it, but when it comes to delivery, that's another story. But um, Elizabeth was barren, and they had passed the childbearing years, and their hopes had just kind of dissipated that they would ever have a child. And this angel shows up and says, Zacharias, you're going to have a baby. Elizabeth's going to get pregnant and have a baby, and you're going to name him John. <laughs> Zacharias, you know, this is my um, interpretation. He says, right. You're kidding, right? <laughs> and, and the angel says, you shouldn't have said that because you're not going to say anything else until he's born. And all of a sudden, Zacharias can't talk. And he comes out of the, you know, he comes out of the temple and he can't speak. Is it? He's trying to gesture and no one knows what's going on. But after a while, it's obvious that Elizabeth has conceived and she is going to give birth to a child. And the time comes for her to give birth and this baby boy is born and all the friends and family come for the, you know, the dedication and the... Um, circumcision and the naming of the child and, and and they say what are you going to name him you know and Elizabeth says he is going to be John and they, Elizabeth John there's nobody in your family named John let Zacharias weigh in on this one so they hand Zacharias a tablet who's still unable to speak at this point in time and Zacharias just writes down on the tablet pretty plainly his name is John. Okay. And it's right at that time that Zacharias' mouth is opened and he's able to speak. And this is what he says. First thing he says, verse 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us See that intervention of God in history? He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant. He's speaking of Jesus, by the way, not John. It's a pretty amazing prophecy. As He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him 
all of our days. And you, child, John, now he's speaking of, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Will you turn back in your Bibles just a little bit to the Old Testament last book, Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, right before Matthew. Just back a little bit. Four hundred years before this moment, God had spoken through the prophet Malachi the first public words of God the last public words of God that would be heard in Israel for 400 years. I want you to think about that just a moment. I mean, we're talking about from the time of the pilgrims until now. Go way back to Plymouth and the colonies in our time frame. We, we don't even think in those terms. I mean, that's just so far back, we just don't even think about it. Four centuries without a public word from God. And the nation is languishing under Roman oppression and Roman rule. And they're longing. They're longing for hope. They're longing for deliverance. They're longing for some way out of the the drudgery that their lives have become. Those who are particularly astute or longing for spiritual revival, they know their leaders are corrupt. They know that the great nation of Israel is a shambles politically. They're hungering for God to come and do something. The last words that anyone heard from God... For behold, the day is coming, verse 1 of chapter 4, Malachi. The day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. But these great words rang in the heart and ears and minds of Israel 
But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. And then in Luke, as Zacharias prophesies, we uh, hear these tremendous words as he concludes his prophecy. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sin, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke's message is one of tremendous hope for people who sit in darkness. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And for those who are oppressed, for those who are sad, for those who are brokenhearted, for those who are weak, and lame and maimed and sick for those who need a redeemer and who need a fresh start and who need to come out of the shadow of death into the brightness of the glory of God the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings his wings and Zacharias says this this is the time this is the time and Luke says I want to tell you this story how the sun has risen once again. Not just for the Jews, but for all the peoples of the world. Those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And those who have lived in the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. And his name is Jesus. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. And as we prepare our hearts to study and to delve into Luke's inspired, truthful account of the events surrounding the life of Christ, Lord, thrill us with the glimpse of Jesus and give us faith to believe that He is available to us even now with these same promises. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.